Well, like I mentioned, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning. And, and like I said, I'd really encourage you to have a Bible open with you or, a, like I said, another tab on your browser. We will have the words on the screen, but I'll be referring back to it often, so I think it'd be helpful there. Uh, Psalm 139 is uh, one of the more well-known psalms. Uh, in fact, uh, some commentators have said this is the apex of Hebrew poetry. Uh, and so you may recognize some of the lines in it as we go through. Uh, the psalm is 24 verses long, and it's broken uh, pretty symmetrically into uh, four, sex, four sections of six verses each. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at each section in turn and talk about each one as we go. So let's look at the first section. That's verses 1 through 6. And this section focuses on God's knowledge. All right, let me read it for us. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So, like I mentioned, this section is really focusing on God's knowledge. He is the God who knows me. He knows everything there is to know about me. I mean, just look at the verbs here. You know is used three times. You know when I sit and when I rise. You know me. You know the words on my tongue before they're even there completely. You discern my going out, and that verb can also mean to kind of sift or examine. The idea is that he's paying attention. You perceive my thoughts. You are familiar. You're intimately acquainted with all of my ways. The point is that God's knowledge of you is unparalleled. There is no one on earth who knows God or knows you as well as God knows you. In fact, he knows you even better than you know yourself. When it says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, the point isn't that I know what I'm going to say, but I haven't said it yet, but still God knows. No, the point is that God knows what I'm going to say even before I know what I'm going to say. I'm sure you've experienced times in your life where you've learned something about yourself that has always been there, but it, didn't, it wasn't clear to you until someone pointed it out or you discovered it in some way. They're kind of like blind spots, you know, when we're driving and we can't see but until we look. Well, the point is that God knows all of our blind spots. He knows who we are completely. He knows what we need. He knows what we're going to say, what we're going to do, who we're going to spend our time with, where we're going to go. He knows all of that before we've even had a clue about any of it. Now, we live in an age when everyone's gathering information about you. If you're watching on YouTube right now, they're gathering information on you right now. They're collect collecting data. But if you were to combine the information that Apple, Google, the IRS, whatever, all of them know about you, maybe put it in a binder, God knows infinitely more than all of them combined. One of the things this means is that there are no secrets that we can or that we have to keep from God. There's no hiding from him. He knows all of it. That is both a comforting and a frightening thought. 
It's comforting in that he cares for us, that he is that involved, that he knows us that much, that we don't have to explain ourselves all the time to him because he knows what's in our hearts and minds. But it's also frightening and sobering because if we're honest, all of us have said and thought some pretty ungodly things. And yet God loves us just the same. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows you at your best and at your worst. And what that means is that when he adopted you as his son or daughter into his family through Jesus, he knew what he was getting into. It's not like a relationship where something can be revealed about you that's going to make God back out of the deal. He's in it, and he knows what he's in. But I want you to notice that the knowledge isn't just comprehensive. It's not just that he knows everything. The knowledge is personal and active. He is discerning. He's sifting. He's surrounding. In verse 5, it talks about him laying his hand upon us. He's hemmed us in. That means he kno- he's all around us. This is not the kind of information gathered because he's a stalker who doesn't know personal boundaries. This is not the kind of information gathered to sell you products. This is the kind of knowledge that a parent knows about their child or a spouse knows about their husband or wife. This knowledge is a form of his love and his care. As an example, you know, when I was younger, if I was going to go to my friend's house after school or, or really do anything after school out of the ordinary, I needed to call my mom and tell her. I mean, I'm sure many of you had to do that, and if you're parents, you're probably having your kids do that, right? That's a normal parent thing to do. Why do you need that information? Because you care. Because you care about your child. The point is that God's knowledge of you is total and complete, and that is a form of his love for you. And as David thinks about this, he's not just thinking about the fact of it. It moves him to worship. It moves him to adoration and thanksgiving. And in verse 6, he says, that knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. And when he says wonderful, you might immediately think, you know, enjoyable or, or kind of like a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not exactly what he's getting at. He'll get to that later. But here, the word wonderful really means uh, complex, intricate, powerful. The word is used to describe God's miracles in the book of Exodus. It's used to describe things that are difficult or often impossible to understand apart from the power of God. The point is, this knowledge is above my pay grade. And pretty much that's what he says. It's too lofty for me to attain. The idea is that his knowledge is so vast and so deep that if I were to try to comprehend it, the bucket in my brain is just not big enough to hold the amount of information. And so here in this section, we see David adoring and worshiping and responding to the fact that he is the God who knows me. But then he moves on to the next section. This is verses 7 through 12. And this is focusing more on God's presence. And so let's read that one together. Verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand would hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. 
The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So I want you to notice that this whole section starts with two rhetorical questions. He asks, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? And by a rhetorical question, we mean the answer is obvious. He already knows the answer. It's nowhere. And what follows is a string of hypotheticals. Now, David is not actually wanting to run from God at this point. There are other times in Scripture where he does or someone else tries to, like Jonah, and it obviously doesn't work out. But his point is that even if I wanted to, even if I tried, even if I had superhuman ability to go anywhere in the universe, you would still be there. And it's all this beautiful and poetic imagery to teach us that there is nowhere above, below, or on earth where God is not. You go up to the heavens, you go up to the sky, to space, he's there. Now that might seem obvious to us because we often think of God as being up and above, don't we? But I want to look at what he says next. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now that's a little bit more surprising. The word depths there, you might have a footnote in your Bible or depending on your translation, it might just say sheol. And that's the Hebrew word for the grave or the place of the dead. That's where dead people go is sheol. And in the mind of an ancient Jew, if there's one place where God wouldn't be, it would be Sheol. And yet, there he is. This is why David can say in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's describing Sheol, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He's there. And later, just a few verses later, he's saying, if a If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and that verb hide can also mean to crush or to overtake, it's going to overwhelm me. The light's going to become night around me. He's saying, if I go to the darkest places, the darkest times in my life, God is still there. He doesn't need a flashlight. He doesn't need night vision goggles. He can see just as clearly. He knows where we are. He is still there. And this is all reiterating the main point of the section, that our God is present everywhere and in every situation. This this phrase in verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, I mean, he's talking about east to west, rising with the wings of dawn. He's talking about sunrise over in the east. And he says, settle on the far edge of the sea. And it's, it's kind of like our geography here in the Pacific Northwest, where to the east of us is land, to the west of us is water. And the, as the sun rises out of the land and sinks down into the water, he's saying, across all of that, there is God. If I were to go all the way to where the sun comes up or all the way to where the sun goes down, God is there to the very ends of the earth. So let this be an encouragement to you. That even though we are not able to gather together in one church building right now and there are um, riches and enjoyments in that that we can't have right now, one of the things that is still true is that God is still with you. You don't need to be in this physical building to experience the presence of God. He is with you in your home, in your living room, in your bedroom, wherever it is you are right now. He is just as much with you as he is here with me. He's there when you're driving in your car. He's there at the grocery store. He is always there. 
and notice that he's in, with him being in the depths of Sheol, in the darkness, that, that's not just physical places David is talking about. Even in life's darkest moments, when moments, when times are really tough, and we are going through a pretty dark moment as a whole society, as a whole world right now, God is not absent. He is here with us. Commenting on this psalm, John Calvin said, however far off we may be from him, he is never far from us. He's always with us. And again, this is both comforting and frightening. It's frightening if you're going to try to run from God, which isn't going to work, but it can be comforting to know that he's never going to leave. And the reason for that is because he has been around from the very beginning of our lives and even before that. And that's pretty much what David says here in the next section. And this next section is focusing on God as his creator. So in the first section we had the God who knows me. And this section we just looked at is the God who is with me. And now David is going to meditate and reflect on the God who made me. So let's look at verses um, 13 through 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And so you can see how this section is totally focusing on God as our creator, as the one who made us. And I just want to point out a few things. Um, I wish we had more time to go through almost every single word or phrase here because this is so rich. But, but in verse 13, I just want to point out that what's translated as inmost being or maybe some of your translations might say inner parts or things like that. Uh, fun fact, the word is literally kidneys. You created my kidneys. Uh, and the reason it says that is because in Hebrew thought, uh, the kidney was thought of as sort of the command central for all of your emotions and your mind and your thinking. Similar to how we use the word heart when we say, you know, I love you with all of my heart or I mean this from the bottom of my heart. We're not talking about a physical organ. We're, we're using that to describe everything within us. And so similarly, it's talking about the kidneys being the place where God has made every bit of us. And so he's making the point here that God has made not just our physical bodies, which he talks about in verses 15 and 16, but he's also made the non-physical parts of us, our emotional life, our thought life, our spirit and souls, however you want to phrase it. The idea is that God made our entire being, every bit of it. And so this is why we have the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has made us entirely, and so we are entirely his. Now, I want to focus in on the phrase in verse 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that phrase, fearfully and wonderfully made, 
When it says fearfully, it, it doesn't mean that God had anxiety or tension and his fingers were trembling when he was creating you. Think about it more like I was carefully made, intentionally made. And again, we have the word wonderful here, wonderfully made, and then your works are wonderful. That's the third time in this psalm that same word is used. And again, it's used to describe something that's complex, that's intricate, that's powerful, that points to God's power. And so when it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, it's a point of complexity. It's a point of intention. God is being described as a master craftsman. The verbs that are used about knitting and weaving and making, those are used in other places of embroiderers, like making a, a, a very intricate and beautiful tapestry or basket. And God is described like a master craftsman weaving and knitting our bodies and souls together in the womb before the ultrasound could ever pick up a heartbeat. Let me give you an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Many of you know that my wife Olivia and I just had our fourth baby. His name is Tabor, and, and he's almost four months old. And when my wife was pregnant, she, was, she knitted this little baby sweater for him, uh, which is just adorable, isn't it? Um, unfortunately, he was born as a giant, so he only got to wear it like once or twice. Um, and I don't really know, I don't know the monetary value of the yarn used here. Um, but if you were to go to, you know, JCPenney or Norsham or wherever and try to buy a baby sweater that probably costs more than this, it would still be worth less to me uh, and to us because of why this was made, because of who made it, the care and intention that went into it. Or, or I've got another example. When I was a baby, uh, my dad, for my brother and I, made a toy box. And we had this toy box all growing up. And I didn't realize until almost like a year ago that my dad had built it when I was an infant. And my mom was telling me it was really important to my dad that he built it and that he went to all the different stores to try to find just the right hinges so that the lid on the box wouldn't slam but would slowly close so it didn't smash our fingers. And that is, he cared way more about us than, you know, any other manufacturer would if you were to just go buy a box at a store. That's what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, to be made with care, with intention. God is this master craftsman, and we are not dollar store trinkets. God has put a lot of care and intentionality into you. His attitude towards you is not casual or apathetic. It is infinitely loving and committed. And so David's not just making the point that you made me, but how you made me communicates your love and your care for me and that elicits out of me worship and love and adoration. What this means is that we are not the result of an evolutionary process. We are not descended from apes or monkeys. It's not like there was an explosion at the paint shop and we ended up with the Mona Lisa. We were made fearfully and wonderfully and we remained that way because of God's love and our care and his care for us. You know, there are over 7 billion people in the world right now, and it's not going to be too long before we get to 8 billion. And yet God knows each one of us by name. You are not just another number to him. 
He is the God who knows you, the God who is with you, and he is the God who has been intimately involved in every aspect of your life from the moment of conception until now, and he will be there until the very last day. He has written the story of your life from eternity past. Now, that doesn't mean you don't make real choices. That doesn't mean you aren't responsible for your actions. It just means that he cares about you, that he's always been there. And he still is. And so we've seen that he is the God who knows me. He is the God who is with me. And he is the God who has made me. And then we get to this next section. Let me read it for us. This is verses 19 through 24. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men, They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what in the world is going on here? Does it not feel like we've just been literally clotheslined in this poem? Like, like, so far we've had an extended meditation on God's knowledge, his presence, his, his creation of us, and it's all been communicating this love and this care, and it's been, you know, very peaceful and encouraging and comforting. And then David just sits back and just, I just wish you'd kill all those horrible people. I totally hate them and I want them dead. And it just feels like it comes out of left field. We were looking at this uh, psalm in, an, in my small group this last week, and, and someone said, I, I don't like these verses. Um, And that can be kind of a natural reaction because what do we do with them? Well, uh, a few things I want us to just recognize. One, let's recognize really quick, let's be intentional and realize what is David actually upset about? He's not praying about and he's not upset about people who are attacking him per se. Now he does that in other places like the very next psalm. But here, that's not what's driving his prayer. You get maybe a hint of that in verse 19, but most of it, it's they speak against you, God, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? Abhor those who rise up against you. I count them my enemies. He is zealous for God's honor and glory and goodness. He sees these evil men dishonoring God's good character and good world and he is frustrated by it. He's angry at their evil intentions and their malicious words. And if you think about this a little bit more, this actually makes perfect sense because this psalm has been an extended meditation on his pre- God's knowledge, presence, and care. And in light of that, David sees evil going on in the world and he says, how can you be allowing that to continue? I think David is expressing not frustration at God, per se, but his frustration with the reality of evil in the world. 
if God is good and God is in control and he's all-knowing and, and he made me and he's always here, what are these evil people doing? Why would you allow them to live? Just kill them. Get them out of here. And in verse 19, so he says, if only you would slay the wicked. Now notice, he doesn't actually request that God does that. He's expressing his wish. I wish you would do this, God. It makes a lot of sense to David what he thinks God should do. Lord, I see a problem and I know how to solve it. Let me tell you. If only you would slay the wicked. But he doesn't understand why God isn't doing that. Haven't you ever felt that way? Haven't you ever seen or experienced evil and suffering and thought, why are you doing this? Have you ever prayed, God, if only you would have prevented the coronavirus? God, if only you would heal everybody? God, if only you would provide the vaccine? We know you know it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to us what God should do right now. But again, notice that David doesn't make that his direct request. He expresses a wish, but that's not what he actually prays for. And again, he'll do that in the next psalm and other places where he'll, he'll pray um, God's judgment on people. But here, he's just expressing genuine frustration with evil and confusion as to why God would allow it to continue. And I just want to give you permission that it's okay to do that. It's okay to express your frustration that you haven't been to work in weeks with God. It's okay to express your frustration that you're tired of sitting at home and that you want to go to church, that you want to go places without standing six feet away from everybody you know. It's okay to express that frustration. But I want you to see how David responds to this frustration. And this is where the psalm will really hit us. In verses 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. He does not pray that God would fix the evil he sees going on out there. He, fi- he prays that God would fix what's going on in here. Fix my heart, O God. And notice that these are the only two requests in the entire psalm. The whole thing has been adoration, worship, and then frustration. But his only request is that God would fix him. And isn't it interesting that what he requests is exactly where the psalm started? He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. What's the first verse say? You have searched me and you know me. But upon closer reflection and inspection, David realizes there's more in there that you need to take care of. And so he submits himself to God's spiritual x-ray, inviting him to take a look at the deepest parts of his heart and his soul. You see, it's very easy to look outside of us and to see other people or other things going on and pray that God would fix them God would convict them of their sin. God would give them wisdom to solve this problem. That God would fix that out there. But it takes a lot of integrity to pray truthfully and honestly what David does here. Fix me. 
Now notice what he actually asked God to do. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Now anxious thoughts actually comes from only one Hebrew word. We have it as two words here in English and that word only shows up um, two times in the entire Bible. One here and the other in Psalm 94 where he is again feeling frustrated with the presence of evil around him. It's related to nightmares and bad dreams. It's related linguistically to troubled thoughts. And what he is asking God to do is to, again, go through the spiritual x-ray and find in me my worries, my fears, my restless doubts about the character and goodness of God, my troubled thoughts, my anxieties about the future. Do you have any of those? Because that's what David asked God to address, is his own fears, his own anxious thoughts. And he says, Lord, when you find those, if you find any offensive way in me, and literally that could be translated any way of pain, and who is it painful or offensive to? Well, it's offensive to both me and to God, the God who's, who knows me, who's with me, who's been with me and made me. When I walk away and stop trusting him and stop trusting his character, that's offensive and painful both to him and to me. And so he says, Lord, if you find that in my heart, take me off of that path and put me on the way everlasting. I have found that my time studying this psalm has been both very encouraging and very convicting. I've been encouraged by reflecting on God's personal knowledge of me, God's presence with me, God's care for me, and my realization that that in sending Christ, all of those things go to the next level, that God's love and care and concern, all of that is motivating the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I am moved like David was, to adoration and worship for his willingness to be so close, so intimate, so involved. And my hope is that you've been encouraged by those things as well, that God's knowledge of you is absolute. His presence with you is absolute. His power over you as your creator is absolute, and all of that is communicating his absolute love and care for you. And so those things have been encouraging. But It's also convicting because just like David, we might have great theology. We might love those things about God. We might be very encouraged by them and yet we still struggle with the reality of evil in the world, especially in moments like this. And I want God to get rid of it. And I'm sure you do too. And it is a good and right thing that we would pray for God's healing that we would pray for God to help the doctors develop this vaccine, that we would pray for God's protection and an end to suffering. But it's also been a conviction in my heart from this psalm that I have been pushed to ask God not just to fix what's going on out there, but to fix what's going on in here, to work on me, to find my anxious thoughts, to reveal the offensive path in my heart, and to lead me away from it. And I would just encourage you to do the same. And so let me close by just reminding you, he is the God who knows you. He is the God who is with you. 
He is the God who cares for you, who made you. And he is the God who will search your soul and lead you into the path of everlasting life if you'd let him do it. Let me pray for us. Oh God, thank you for this psalm written thousands of years ago and yet so pertinent to us today. Yeah, I thank you for speaking to us through your word. And I do ask, God, that you would fix what's going on out there. I do ask that you would bring healing and that you would help a vaccine to be created and that you would comfort and encourage. But Lord, I also ask that for myself and for those who are listening and and those who are part of this church, would you search our hearts, God? Would you take us into the spiritual x-ray and fix what's wrong inside of our souls? We love and trust you, and at the same time, we have our doubts. And so, Lord, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.